Our topic this afternoon is repentance, and our title is Making Repentance Clear. As Christians, and indeed as a Christian community, which, for example, the Upper Room Christian Assembly could be called a Christian community, in that entrance into our own Christian experience and participating together as a Christian community is characterized according to the Apostle Paul as beginning by repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, it is critical that Christians, it is critical that Christian communities are clear on what one of the first principles of the doctrine of Christ is, and that is repentance. Indeed, it has been the case over the span of church history when godly ministers have taken up the topic of repentance and have pressed this matter under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the declaration of the clear teaching of God's Word that they who comprise the membership of Christian communities have sometimes discovered that they are not Christians after all because they never entered into what they take to be their stance before God. They never entered into it with a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches as it relates to repentance. Beyond that, there is the need for Christians to grow. And one way in which this need for growth is addressed is in the language of James, chapter 1 and verse 21, in the somewhat challenging language of the King James Version, but I still really value the King James Version for many reasons, among them for the purposes of memorization. The passage reads like this, Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And I hope it is clear to you that that exhortation from James as it relates to the Christian community, the gathered church, which is about to receive the ministry of the word that is able to save your soul, which is to say to deliver you further out of the habits of the old man and to bring into your experience the application of the fullness of Jesus' redemption so that indeed you are walking in a more and more godly way before your brother and sister in Christ and before God Himself. I was saying, I hope it is clear to you that the exhortation of James is not perhaps even primarily addressing a certain individual within the church that is all bunched up and all teeming over and all stressed with filthy habits and filthy thoughts and filthy lifestyle and a superfluity of disobedience and rebellion. And that the exhortation is to such an individual to realize that this is their present disposition. And if they are going to benefit from the ministry of the word, they better lay all that aside. Why, certainly that 
is a necessary step for someone to take before they can receive the word of God in such a way that it benefits their soul and they continue to grow from week to week and therefore can better benefit the body as they bring more of the life of God into the organism of Jesus' church. But we hope it isn't the case that before every fresh ministration of the word of God, we hope it isn't the case that pastors and teachers throughout the churches have to deal with various individuals who need in the moment to lay apart all this filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Rather, dear brothers and sisters, the exhortation is speaking more broadly to the process of sanctification. And it is alerting us all to the fact that we have to be constantly attentive toward walking in more and more light so that we can be in deeper and deeper fellowship with Almighty God. And we have to recognize that church and its ordination by God is largely for the purpose of helping us to put aside all the filthiness and the excess of fleshly activity that the old man used to walk in as a matter of habit. And we have to recognize that this is a disposition of heart, dear brothers and sisters, that we are always attentive to the filthiness, that which is unholy, that which is unclean, that which is unsanctified, that we are attentive to things that would team up in our heart and overflow and thereby hinder our ability to receive with meekness this engrafted word that is designed to bring about a deeper and deeper repentance and change in our lives. And so just through those two passages, I think you can see that repentance is a condition of heart that the believer is to walk in. And we must therefore be very clear about what its characteristics should look like. I believe that we are living in a time that Jesus predicted within which lawlessness is abounding. You recall Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and verse 12. Whether or not we are in that particular season within which that prediction is most eschatologically relevant, or in some proleptic manifestation of the great lawlessness that is going to characterize the entire world, it is certainly the case that relative to what we have experienced over the years, we are in a time of advanced lawlessness, dear brothers and sisters, that has all the characteristics of the perilous times that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we must remember in that we are living within this time and season and this culture of lawlessness that once we walked as the Gentiles walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that there is a spirit that is at work in the children of disobedience, in the children of lawlessness. And as it was with Lot, as Peter tells us in the second chapter of his second epistle, he presents a principle to our hearts that says that while it's always necessary 
For we fallen humans to understand repentance toward God in order to enter into faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and to be a Christian indeed. That whereas churches have always needed to lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness as they gather from week to week so that the word of the Lord can come into meek and receptive hearts. And therefore they need to understand repentance. They need to understand that there are things in their lives that need to be addressed that are out of divine order so that they can get things right before God and grow in strength and in holiness and in purity and be a temple of the Holy Spirit that will be increasingly inhabited by the one who says, touch not the unclean and I will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. It is all the more necessary, dear brothers and sisters, if we find ourselves in some measure at least in the principle of that which was spoken of the person Lot. As I've said before, I hope no one here has purposely pitched their tent in Sodom. But the Bible certainly presents a situation that can be characterized as Sodom overtaking your habitation. That is to say, where you have been dwelling, the nation, the state, the neighborhood that you have been living in can be allowed in God's providence to become more and more characterized by wickedness and lawlessness. Again, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, the days leading up to the Son of Man are going to be characterized by worldwide sinfulness, disobedience, and lawlessness. Dear brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say to you is that our souls can be encroached upon, our minds, our dispositions can be strained and stressed and even corrupted. It was said of Lot that his righteous soul was vexed from day to day. We might be able to loosely say that he was slipping into some of the patterns that maybe he had found strength not to walk in when he was side by side with the in, under the influence of Abraham and not under that vexing lawless characteristics that were around him. And so I'm saying to you, I believe, brothers and sisters, that the need to understand repentance is even more critical for the church of Jesus Christ that is seeking to be faithful to God in the midst of a lawless culture. For your spirits can begin to imbibe the disobedience, the rebellion, the resistance, all the works of the flesh, if you don't wash yourself with the washing of the water of the word, if you aren't humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, if you aren't examining yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. I begin today's study by bringing to your attention one such situation within which Christians were not very clear about what repentance should look like and even that repentance was necessary in a particular grievous situation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, speaking of the Christian community in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes and says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. It is reported commonly. This is informing us 
as it relates to the Corinthian assembly, that they had acclimated to the presence of sinful behavior to the degree that we will see in just a moment that they were not even seemingly aware of it. They certainly weren't addressing it. It certainly wasn't grieving them that this leaven was in their midst on a continual basis. And when Paul speaks of the report being common, I believe that it is addressing not only the possibility that from the house of Stephanus or some other family or some other member within the assembly that was more spiritually minded, that he would hear about this grievous sin in Corinth, but just that this was well known, that this behavior was something that was going on in the church of Corinth and was being left unaddressed. And he goes on to say that the sin that he's speaking about, it's bad enough that it's fornication, but it's fornication of a certain nature that even Gentiles often don't practice, that they would be somewhat ashamed to practice this form of fornication. And I do think that we can apply this principle to other sins beyond just fornication. There can be various sins that are committed by God's people, that is to say, at least members of the church, about which it could truly be said that Gentiles don't even conduct themselves with these attitudes, with these lack of respect for God's house, for example, things that we've talked about over the years, whether it's just a matter of dressing appropriately, whether it's a matter of being on time, when it's a, whether it's a matter of preparing yourself appropriately spiritually. I grant that perhaps that's a little bit of a stretch, but I think it uses the principle in which I'm trying to state that suppose it's common in a particular church situation that it's widespread that they who come to the meeting do not prepare themselves either in their attire or in the timing of their attendance or the nature of their participation. And this goes on routinely. And yet among the Gentiles and in business situations, that sort of behavior doesn't even take place. Well, I hope you can get my point. He goes on in verse 2 and says... You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. I said a moment ago that the Corinthian assembly, quite apart from understanding what repentance should look like and being clear about how repentance should be applied in this situation, and indeed, as this message will be emphasizing, wanting to clear themselves of this egregious sinful behavior. Paul uses the language of they were puffed up as opposed to mourning. Later he will say, your glorying is not good. We can say that they had grown accustomed to it. They felt that their church situation could nonetheless thrive while this leaven was in their midst, that rather than being grieved and attentive and realizing how destructive this was to the growth and the development spiritually of the Corinthian assembly, they were puffed up, according to the Apostle Paul, thinking that everything would be fine even if it was unaddressed. But Paul says in verse 3, I see it very differently. I see this as such a pressing need that I am not even going to wait till I get there. 
I'm going to address it right now in this letter to you Corinthians. He says, for I verily, I'm not there in the body, but I'm present in my spirit. I sense what is going on in my spirit. I am so grieved and so mourning and so repentant before God. As he who has the care of the churches in my spirit, I have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of verse 5 does indicate that Paul's ultimate objective is repentance. But I think you can note with me the very strident language with which he addresses the sin that the Corinthians were otherwise quite comfortable with and allowed to be in their midst. And how different was the perspective of the Apostle Paul He wants to encourage them to understand how they need to clear themselves, how they need as a church to repent. Indeed, not only does the individual himself need to repent, Paul is effectively saying to the Corinthian church as an assembly, they need to repent of having allowed this leaven. You're glorying. Verse 6 is not good. Do you not realize that a little leaven... Something that is genuinely leaven. This is not the same thing as a little mistake. This is not the same thing as the weaknesses that we all have as we're believers seeking to grow and lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and we're striving to let the Word of God come into us and we have meek hearts and we want our souls to be saved. No, as you're seeing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 by principle, here... In the church was an individual that was harboring a sinful pattern of life, and it was an evil leaven as such. And Paul's saying, that does not stay in one person. It leavens the entire assembly. And I don't know, perhaps he's even saying, your worship sessions are unacceptable before God to the extent that you allow that to be in your presence and you don't address it. Your glorying is not good. I think he's more speaking about how you feel triumphalistic, you feel okay, you feel like it'll all work out anyway, something like that. He's saying, no, it won't. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Listen to his language. Now he's instructing them. He's at a distance. He says, purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you might be a new lump. Why should a church need to be a new lump? Well, it all depends on what they're allowing in their body. Sometimes you need to detox your body. Sometimes you need to purge out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you should be unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, perhaps pointing to communion services, as you know he will get to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11. And verse 8 says, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I think it's clear to your hearts that the Corinthian church in general would have to experience repentance in order to 
purge out of their own system, out of their own minds and hearts, the things that they allow, the puffing up, the glorying, the relative indifference to the gross sin that was in their midst, so that they could then turn their hearts toward and allow the Spirit to bring into their lives a simple Christian sincerity and love for the truth. Indeed, I think in what Paul goes on to say, we can see a need for a further repentance because I think there was a bit of hiding from the straightforward conviction of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now you know this is 1 Corinthians for ourselves, but evidently the Corinthians had already received a letter from the Apostle Paul that we don't have in the canon of Scripture. So that's what he's referring to. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. And by what he says in verse 10, I think we can legitimately read between the lines to see that they were obscuring, obfuscating, not dealing honestly and forthrightly with what the Holy Spirit was speaking to them. Because, verse 10 says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, which indicates probably an argument that some within Corinth were making as a way of obscuring what the clear message of the Apostle Paul is. And so, for example, someone could say, is your argument, Brother William, that any mistake that anybody makes is therefore leaven and we have to exercise church discipline just because someone's 15 minutes late on a particular Sunday or something along those lines? And it's obscuring. It's playing fast and loose with what the Holy Spirit is clearly saying to the church. It's not receiving with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our soul. In other words, that's the disposition that the Corinthians had that Paul describes as you're puffed up. You're not receiving the word with meekness. Look what he goes on to say. I wrote to you not to company with fornicators. And that message that I wrote to you, as well as a lot of other things that the Spirit has been saying through his ministry to the Corinthian assembly and by principle to other churches where there is a stated ministry that represents God and preaches the full counsel of God's word. In other words, there's a lot of straightforward things that have been said for ourselves. For example, listen to looking for unity number four, and you'll hear a lot of straightforward things that are being said. And to take those straightforward things and to twist them into some message that is not there is a lack of the thing that we're talking about in terms of being open to repenting and changing and hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So again, going to verse 10, I think you can hear it as Paul saying, contrary to the accusations and the obfuscations that have been bubbling up within the Christian assembly as if Paul is saying, well, how are we going to not company with fornicators? They're all around us, you know, and they're not paying attention to the specific application that he's referring to. He said, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. I'm sure that was obvious to Paul from the start. 
He's not thinking now, oh, I should have made that clear. When I originally wrote to you, I was thinking, stay away from all the fornicators of the world. And now that I'm writing what for them is perhaps 2 Corinthians, because I don't know how many previous letters they had, for us, 1 Corinthians, I'm stating it's not like now he's maturer, he's, he's, he's more balanced, and he's saying, oh, I realize that you're in the world. And how can you avoid fornicators completely? So I want to complete verse 10. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. For then must ye need go out of the world. You see what he's saying? Effectively, he's saying, I know you would have to go out of the world if you were not to company completely with fornicators. I didn't spell that out when I originally wrote. But if you receive this word with meekness and with sincerity and truth, with the leaven of sincerity and truth, then it would have been obvious to you and we could have had Christian growth and the Corinthian church could have addressed this sinful member. Maybe this sinful member would have repented if you got on it early enough. If not, at least you would have purged yourself Corinthian church of this leaven, and you would be living not as puffed up believers, glorying, thinking everything's going to go wonderful, while you're allowing sin that even the Gentiles don't conduct themselves. They have better patterns of life, better attitudes, better tongues, better dispositions than they who confess to be Christians. You see what he's saying here, verse 11. He's saying, now I'm going to make it real clear. This is all in the same context of his argument in 1 Corinthians 5. And as you'll see in a moment, there's a stridentness to what he's writing here. You should hear this as Paul admonishing them when he says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man is called a brother. And I really believe that the way to understand this is he's effectively saying, Am I clear now to you, Corinthians? I would like to just treat you spiritually, but sometimes I have to treat you like babies. He says that elsewhere. And I'm going to spell it all out. When I wrote to you not to company with fornicators, I wasn't suggesting that you have to avoid all the fornicators, and you could therefore set aside my admonition by saying, well, how are we going to keep that? And not pay attention to the obvious applications. So he says, now I'm writing on to you. Here it is. It's in verse 11. I know they didn't have verses, but you get my point. Here it is right before your eyes. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, and now he's going to extend it to stress how important it is for the Christian church and its members to walk in repentance, to change their lives, to understand that's what we as Christians should be diligent about bringing into our lives and what our Christian development is all about. If any, any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. One wonders even there, is this a bit of Paul explaining it, spelling it all out in a way that he wouldn't normally do it, but he's dealing with this puffed up, glorying, indifferent disposition that these Corinthians had. They were not, a, at this moment, a repentant people. 
For what have I to do to judge them that are without? You see what Paul is saying? When I wrote to you not to company with fornicators, I'm not talking about you or me as an apostle judging everybody out in the world. That wasn't my point. He says, my point is that you judge those that are within. That you be aware of what's within your own heart, what's within your own body. Them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves, yourselves, not the world, from within your church, that wicked person. Now, the relevance of reading chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is so that we can better understand what Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's within this pericope of the 7th chapter that we get the central idea of what this message is centered on. I would like to read to you the 8th through 11th verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll be reading out of the New King James Bible. Paul refers to a letter that he had previously written that had potentially made the Corinthians sorry. That is to say, it hurt their feelings. In one way or another, it, it, it didn't seem edifying to them. It, it made, in his language, it, it made you sorry. And what we've just done in looking into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is we've looked at one of the main issues that the apostle addressed Though we addressed additional issues than just that in 1 Corinthians 5 about fornication, in 1 Corinthians 6 he's going to address them going to law against one another before the unbeliever. But in 1 Corinthians 5, the contrast between the habit of the Corinthian church and their viewpoint of the egregious sin that was like a leaven in their midst over against Paul's strident language. Put that wicked person out. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver him to Satan. I mean, the, the, the distinction between their viewpoint and the Corinthians puffed up, glorying, absent any of that kind of concern viewpoint, if you're following what I'm saying, was likely to produce within them a non-receptivity. You know what I mean? A, a sorrowful heart, a, a, well, I don't like this letter sort of feeling. And so it's, with that in the backdrop, read what he says here, beginning with verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. After I wrote 1 Corinthians and I express my heart so strongly, which I believe Paul had the mind of the Lord. I think Paul saw things much more clearly than the Corinthians did. I think he had the zeal of the Lord in a good, Holy Spirit balanced way. But Paul knew that sometimes you can't feed people with meat. You have to give them milk. They cannot handle it. They don't understand what you're saying. So his own words state that after he wrote that letter and sent it, knowing how strongly he has expressed himself, not that he felt that his position was fundamentally errant, but that it would so disturb their hearts. They were so unprepared and, and lacking the ability to understand his heart in the matter. He, he regretted sending it, regretted at least sending it with that nature of language. But then we go on to read 
I don't regret it any longer, he is saying, for I perceive that that epistle made you sorry. You could read repentant, though only for a while. Well, perhaps maybe I should alter that. We will get to sorry later. That is virtually synonymous to repentant. But I think maybe what we should read there is when they initially received Paul's language, they were a bit offended. They were not happy. They were taken aback. They thought, whoa, this guy's kind of cruel. But then they thought about it, and the Spirit of God worked in their hearts, and no doubt Paul was interceding that they would receive with meekness this engrafted word, which is able to save their soul, and hoping that they would lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, so that that could occur in their lives. So he says it only lasted for a little while that you had that sort of affront, that sort of like, oh, I don't really harmonize with this. This is making me sorry. I'm not, this is not my making my heart glad. This is not edifying to me. He said, now I rejoice, not that you went through that process, not that you were made sorry, but that you saw that, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Because that's exactly what we need, brothers and sisters. If we're Christians in the church of Jesus Christ preparing to be the bride of Christ and to be without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing, to be in his glorious holy presence without Holiness, no man shall see the Lord to give an account for every word that we speak, every thought that we've had. And I do believe in justification by faith. I do believe that we are saved by faith through grace. And even that gift of faith is not of ourselves. But dear brothers and sisters, the Bible still teaches that we are to purify our souls through obedience of the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren. We are to be a people that are repenting and changing. And it's in your Bibles. He says, I'm glad that you repented. He's not saying, I'm sorry that you think that now you're saved by works. Do you follow what I'm saying? Works, grace, distinction is not in the picture right now. It is just that if you are a Christian, you should be walking as Jesus walked. And they were not. They were misrepresenting Jesus As some of our teachings more recently, they were presenting the body of Christ as if it's okay with egregious sin right in its members. And that is not true of Jesus. He would cleanse the temple if he needed to. He'd flip the tables over if he needed to, to purify his father's house. He says, your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. You didn't just feel self-pity. You didn't just mope around. You didn't just say, oh, I guess the Apostle Paul's got so much authority and so many people listen to him. I guess I'm going to have to put this guy out. I don't really want to. It's not really pleasing to my heart, but I guess we're going to have to do it anyway. He said, no, that wasn't the nature of your sorrow. It wasn't after the world. And therefore... You suffer, not, you suffer loss from us and nothing. In other words, we're, we haven't hurt you a bit. We've brought the word of God to you. We've spoken straight to your souls. And because you received it and you repented, you opened your heart to what the Spirit of God is saying to the church, we haven't hurt you a bit. Verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. That was necessary in a church. In other words, I'm saying again, repentance is such a critical doctrine for us because to become a Christian, legitimately, you have to have repentance toward God. 
And that needs to mean something. But to a church, he says, here, this godly sorrow produced repentance leading to salvation. A further deliverance from the ways of the old man, not to be regretted of, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And now we get this rich description of what repentance looks like. In our study that we're going to engage in this afternoon, we aren't going to take up each one of these terms and investigate them individually. That's a worthy undertaking. I've read ministers that have preached on this subject that do that very thing. I'm thinking in particular of some of the Puritan preachers that have taken this text up and have worked through each of these terms and their Greek connotation, and it's edifying and it's instructive. That's not precisely what we're going to do, but we are nonetheless working from the essence of what Paul is saying here, because when you put it all together, one thing that emerges is that their repentance was a clear repentance. They made repentance clear that they were separated from this issue and they weren't going back. And they understood what the apostles' grievances were, what his advice was, what his instruction was. He says, look what diligence it produced in you. That is juxtaposed over against the image of the Greek term translated puffed up. That's the picture of someone who's just sort of sitting back, enjoying Christianity, eating potato chips, just sort of puffed up, going through the motions religiously, while there's sin in their life, sin around them, sin in their home, and they just glory. Nonetheless, you know what I mean? They still come to church and they still go through their religious service and they glory in all of this. And he says, it's not good. As he says in another place, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Think of how different Paul's mindset was over against the Corinthians. They needed a lot of repentance to become a true, vital, spiritual, healthy, strong assembly. But they're on track. According to the Apostle Paul, at this point, he says, look what diligence. You're exercising yourself unto godliness now. You've taken up some discipline. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. You've cleared yourself, as he'll say at the end of this same verse of this matter. What indignation. What fear. A fear of committing the same sin again. A fear of not being attentive to leaven developing. One might ask, well, wouldn't you be concerned about paranoia, about overreaction? And the answer shortly is yes. That's why ministry is so important to have godly, spiritual, prayerful ministry in your midst in order to be armed on the right hand and on the left hand with the word of righteousness to keep us in balance. But as it was presently, they were so puffed up, it was good that they had a little bit of fear introduced into their way of looking at how you do church. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to dress inappropriately. I don't want to be habitually late to the meeting. I don't want to be unprepared. Those aren't bad things, brothers and sisters. When your physical body 
begins to get more diligent. And if the members of your body could be personalized, your arm, your fingers, your nose, your ear, and each one could take up their responsibility to be more healthy and be on time and be more uh, exercised to benefit the entire person, you, you would be very much blessed and realize how critical this is to your overall healthy experience. What vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication... In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In other words, the Corinthians had made repentance clear. Well, there's a principle, dear brothers and sisters, for any Christian believer as well as any Christian community, including the Upper Room Christian Assembly. There need not be some specific sin that we have to have in the backdrop that we're thinking about. Some experience like the Corinthians themselves had where they had overlooked this egregious sin of this fornicator or other traditions that were making the word of God of none effect. I mean, the Corinthians had traditions. Maybe it wasn't the tradition of coming late to the meeting all the time, but it was the tradition of taking one another to the courts. That became their tradition. It was making the word of God of none effect. And what I'm saying, it doesn't necessarily have to be some specific very defined sin that's working in the background. It just is the recognition that in order for our Christian development to go on and for the Word of God to have free course and be glorified and its, its power and its, its, its holiness and its effect to, to, to have its way in our life, then we need that description of, of an openness and a repentant heart, which we will develop in this teaching as we work through the study. I want to remind you as we move to some particular points in this teaching that while as it relates to the New Testament, I think it can probably be said that the Corinthian assembly was a particularly egregious situation. You don't read of such an array of unbiblical behavior grouped together in one church like you do in the First Corinthian epistle in other locations, I think that's probably safe to say. But you're hearing my hesitation because I'm aware of not quite the same phenomenon, not along the same lines, but what was going on in Galatia, the Galatia churches. But what I want to draw your attention to just briefly is to remind you that five out of the seven churches in Asia Minor, needed to get clear on repentance. I mean, they had things that they needed to repent about that they weren't clear on. And repentance needed to be made clear in their life, just like it needed to be made clear in the Corinthian church life. If Paul had never written that epistle, if there wasn't a man of God like Paul around, they would have just gone on their merry way in repentance and the need of repentance and they themselves making their own repentance clear, clearing themselves of this matter. It never would have happened. And unless the Spirit of God addresses churches in our time, unless there are courageous ministers that will stand up and preach the whole counsel of the Lord, that will lovingly, but also faithfully reprove and rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, then God's people will not be granted the opportunity to make repentance clear. And we certainly need this. Even in the best of conditions, 
The church and the Christian life should be a life characterized by change and repentance and allowing the word to convict you. And then you put off the old man and his ways, which are corrupt, and you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So just listen to what these five churches in Asia Minor needed to hear. We're not going to take up the letters that were addressed to these particular churches in detail. I just want to bring some of the language to your attention so you can hear this phenomenon and realize that this is not something that only develops here and there in a church's experience. We're not always, I mean, we hope it's not always the case that Virtually every church is some outstanding, fairly egregious sin that is going undiscerned and undealt with. We hope that that's not the case. But dear brothers and sisters, I'll let you process it in your own spirits. I'll simply give what is already in your Bibles back to you. As it relates to the church in Ephesus, the Spirit of the Lord said, Remember therefore from whence you are fallen and repent and do the first works. In other words, prior to hearing this address from the Spirit of God, is it not clear to you that the Ephesians were not aware of this need? Or they were obfuscating. In other words, there was some conviction that was coming to their soul, but they were dismissing it because maybe they had good discernment. So they said to themselves, we don't have to worry about the fact that we've left our first love and we're not doing the first works. But when Jesus looks into the situation, he sees it differently. He sees that repentance is needed. We need to clear up this matter. This isn't okay. We need to get this leaven out. Because he says, or else I will come upon you quickly and I will remove your lampstand out of its place except you repent. That is strong language. As strong, I suppose, as what Paul said to the Corinthians. And we hope that the story could be told about the Ephesian church and every one of these churches I'll be referring to. That something like what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 could be said of these Ephesians. You know what I mean? What diligence is produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear and vehement desire, what zeal. You're fully vindicated. You've cleared yourself of this matter. Look at the Ephesians. They've purged out this leaven that they allowed to creep in where they were puffed up because they could discern, but they lacked a first love, maybe among themselves and toward each other, but also toward the community about them. Or for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe they were coming in late routinely and otherwise not prepared to come before the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had lost their first love. But now what clearing of themselves. Look at the Ephesians. Look how on fire they are for the Lord. Now that's a testimony, brothers and sisters. That's a church situation that is going to certainly receive more of Jesus' presence. Not the removing of the lampstand, but an increase in its brightness and its power and its warmth. To Pergamos, he says, Repent, or else I will come on to thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, here in Pergamos, there were false doctrines that the Pergamos church was allowing to fester within their community. There's no other way of reading it. That's precisely what was going on. 
And Jesus says, this is not okay. Either the ministry was not addressing it and they are to be faulted or they were addressing it. And the Pergamite church was not heeding the pastor's counsel. They were dismissing his warnings, something along those lines. Who knows? But what he is clearly saying, what your Bible says to you when you open up to the right verse, Revelation 2 and verse 16, he says, you better clear yourself of this matter. Repent or I myself, Jesus said, if you won't fight against it, I will fight against it. And then look at this to the church in Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2. He says, I gave her space to repent. This introduces an interesting idea which we could put in the category of balance in a meaningful way. I stated earlier, this idea of repentance and purging out leaven is not to be used as a justification for micromanaging one another's lives and and exercising such a critical judgmental spirit that minor infractions are elevated to some thing that would only be fitting if it were a pattern of life and in a heart that is resistant to change, etc. What I'm saying here is listen to the language there's an appropriateness to giving space. Jesus said, I gave space. I gave her space. But you know, sin always occurs in space. The long-suffering of the Lord, the long-suffering of a pastor, the long-suffering of a church, while the word is being preached, while your life is being addressed, it's supposed to lead you to repentance. But if in that space, that space is used for other reasons outside of repentance, then there's going to be a confrontation ultimately between God and the church or God and the individual as happens here. And I gave her space to repent of her sin, her fornication, and she repented not. And he goes on to say that anyone else partaking of this sinful pattern, they also need to repent. You can read it for yourself. I'm just summarizing it. He says, if they don't, then I'm going to cast her and all of her children into great tribulation so that all the churches can know that I'm the one who is searching your heart and your motives. To the church of Sardis, the Spirit says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I come upon thee. For my own heart, in principle, what this exhorts me about is, as I stated at the outset of this message, we are living in lawless times. And my soul at times feels vexed when I hear the news and I see what is happening in the culture and I see the lawlessness abounding and I, I, I see the injustices and so on. And my soul can feel vexed. And if I'm not careful, I can allow that vexedness of my soul to translate into unchristian responses to other people. You know what I mean? I could, I could just 
be worn down. Like the Bible says, the love of the majority will wax cold. They'll just, they'll just, you know, that spirit of disobedience can, can start to creep into you, or you can maybe even allow yourself to go places that you wouldn't normally allow yourself to go just because, relatively speaking, you're not as bad as this wicked culture. But that's not enough before God. He said, you better watch. You better watch over your life under the light of my word. In other words, what I'm saying to myself is I know I have to watch and pray that I stay in a repentant attitude, repentant before God. Sure, I'm a pastor, but I still need to live in a repentant attitude because I'm no superstar. I don't know how to serve God out of my own skin. This sufficiency I have not of myself, but it is of the Lord who makes me an able minister of the New Testament. And I assure you, if I don't live on a weekly, daily basis in a repentant attitude before God, that anointing begins to slip away out of my life. I've felt it at times, I'm ashamed to say, when I've been less attentive to my overall walk. I have felt the distance creep into my life and... By the grace of God, I'm stirred to listen to the language of the Apostle Paul and clear myself of these matters and embrace a new vehemence and a fear and a, and a revenge not to go back into that dark, scary place and live a different way. Because otherwise, it doesn't matter what your name is. I'm preaching to myself. I'm staring at the words and preaching to myself. And I'm saying it doesn't matter what your name is. He says, I'll come as a thief. You won't even know when I'm coming if you don't live with a repentant, open heart before God. And then, of course, the Laodiceans. We read there that as many as he loves, he rebukes and he chastens. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, it seems to me that if it was not the case in some of these other four churches, Ephesus, Pergamos, Thyatira, or Sardis, it was very likely the case in Laodicea that the ministry was not performing its responsibility to exhort, to rebuke, to warn the church. The ministry itself was, provo- was promoting this puffed-up sort of way of thinking about church and your relationship with Jesus. And, of course, the church loved it. You know, it was the message of, we're in rich and increased with goods. We don't have need of anything. We're doing well as an assembly, and we just talk about the grace of God and all that heaven is going to bring to us when Jesus returns. But you'll remember, as he says in verse 20, that Jesus was actually on the outside of that church situation. The door was closed to him. And he is in the awkward uh, situation or circumstance of needing to knock in order to find entrance. And I'm saying that there is an amazing mercy that is coming to all of these churches, but Laodicea in particular, because the mercy is, is that... Jesus, the great shepherd and bishop of all Christian souls, nonetheless loves this church and loves these individuals. And he is performing the duty that the pastor won't perform. He says, as many as I love. That's what your pastor should be doing. I rebuke and I chasten. And it's interesting the way that the Greek 
is set up here. I won't digress into an exposition of it, but I will make a comment. And I will say that it seems to me when he goes on to say, be zealous therefore and repent, what he's referring to is that as you hear this new message of rebuke and chastening and correction, given what you've become accustomed to, Laodiceans, same could be said with the Corinthians. You remember Paul said, I wrote this letter to you and I thought maybe it wouldn't work. Not because it was wrong in terms of Paul was in the flesh, but I don't know if the Corinthians can process it. I don't know if they can really hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He was concerned about that. But by the grace of God, it, de- it did enter into their hearts. They evidently laid aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. And they received the first Corinthian epistle with meekness because it saved their soul. They, as he said, repented unto salvation out of this situation. And I'm saying as it relates to the Laodiceans, given the contrast to the message that they had become accustomed to, this rich message, this increased message, this need of nothing, this I'm okay, you're okay, everything's fine in Jesus, let's glory, let's increase ourselves. We won't call it puff up, but nonetheless, we'll be manifesting that sort of triumphalism. Let's puff up ourselves and imagine this pointed word popping their balloon, rebuking and chastening them. It could have an initial reaction within their souls of anger, envy, upsetness, consternation. And that can be wrapped up in the Greek term translated zealous. It's the idea of bubble and boil. He's saying, when you feel me chastening you and I'm knocking on the door and I'm trying to get your attention in various ways, some of which is chastening... And it's disturbing to your soul. It's not what you like. It's not what you want. It's not the message you want to hear. Jesus is advising them, turn that bubbling energy into a zealous desire to repent. And I'll come and I'll meet with you and I'll sup with you for those that not peek through the mail slot and say, hey, Jesus, maybe I did do a couple things wrong but who like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in a word, open the door wide to this message, this Jesus that's knocking and saying, Lord, come in. And you know what he's going to say when he comes in and sups with you, right? He's going to talk about what you need. And you're all right with that. You're like, Lord, Jesus, come back into my life or come in for the first time into my life and let's sit down together Put the meat on the table, not just the milk. I want a full table of all the food groups. Tell me what I need to hear, Lord, so that I can clear myself in my relationship with you.